This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. We must guard against the military-industrial complex. Exopolitics, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events. From somewhere in the desert, between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Fairy Tales. Because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery, fight for liberty! The only thing we have to fear is fear itself! Sooner or later, though. You always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas, alternative media for discerning minds. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, make yourself at home. I want to thank all our members for your loyalty and support. Tonight's special guest is Jay Whitener. We'll discuss his new DVD, Kubrick's Odyssey. Secrets hidden in the films of Stanley Kubrick. Find out if he really went to the moon and many other secrets. Jay Whitener will be with us shortly. And next week, he is back. That is, if the universe allows it, as he says, the return of Cliff High. If you thought times were interesting during Cliff's last appearance, I can't even imagine what will be discussed. I don't have to tell you, it's going to be a show that you cannot miss. To listen to tonight's full show, become a member. Just go to our website, veritasshow.com, click on the subscribe button, and instantly enjoy all of our material. All of it. Audio and video. By the way, did you know that we discuss every show 
at our forum every week. That's another amenity you receive. All of this for only $7.95 per month. You can stream or download on demand in CD audio quality and take Veritas with you wherever you go. Subscribe today and visit the Veritas store where you can get our 8GB USB drive with Seasons 1 or 2 with bonus material or even MMS. What is MMS? Go to the past shows and listen to Jim Humble's interview entitled Jim Humble versus the FDA. And those of you who are going to the ESETI Ranch in late June are asking me how do you identify yourselves? Well, some people are buying stickers or hats or t-shirts. Go to the very test store and click on it and you'll be able to see anything that may identify you. And if you need to get in touch with me, click on the contact button of our website and also join me on Facebook. And now, get ready to be broken out of the matrix and reach a new level of understanding of Stanley Kubrick's work, the moon landing, mind control, the occult, and the possibility that so much of what we are told by the mainstream media has a very specific agenda behind it. Decide for yourself if a mystery has been solved. Jay Whitener is coming up next. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Jay Whitener is an author, filmmaker, co-author of numerous works, and has produced and directed documentary films, 2012 The Odyssey, Secrets of Alchemy, Earth Under Fire, and many others. Since 2000, Jay Whitener has been the president of Sacred Mysteries Productions, a company dedicated to producing high-quality films that challenge perceptions and help understand the nature of reality. His most recent work, a documentary film entitled Kubrick's Odyssey, Secrets Hidden in the Films of Stanley Kubrick, which will be the focus of tonight's show. You can learn more about Jay Whitener and his work by visiting his website, sacredmysteries.com. And directly from Oregon, I would like to welcome Jay Whitener back to Veritas. Hello, Jay. Welcome back. How are you? Hey, Mel. It's great to be back. I'm great. It's my pleasure. Jay, I always suspected that Stanley Kubrick was trying to tell us something with his movies, but I really had no idea to what extent until I watched part one of your trilogy, Kubrick's Odyssey, Secrets Hidden in the Films of Stanley Kubrick. What is it that motivated you? What was that aha moment when you said, there's something going on here, and I'm going to go through this with a fine-tooth comb? 
Um, actually, uh, it occurred uh, probably less than a month after Stanley died uh, in 1999. I was in France when he died, and uh, I was a huge fan and was really disappointed that he died because, you know, I wanted more films from him. And right. uh, I went back to my home, and I was living in the mountains at the time, in a small house overlooking the Continental Divide. And, uh, and it was a Saturday morning, and uh, my wife and I were just sitting having our morning coffee, and all of a sudden I started talking to her about 2001 A Space Odyssey, and in a moment of revelatory flash, it, it, but taking about two hours to explain it to her, I explained the entire film, and uh, when I got done, uh, I, the real meaning of the film, and when I got done, she said, that's the most amazing thing I've ever heard, you got to write that down before you forget it, and I said, okay, and... Uh, I said, but first I want to watch the film. This is back in the days of VHS. And right. uh, so I ran down to our little tiny VHS rental store in our little town and uh, walked into the uh, uh, the shop to get the tape to rent it to watch it. And it was on the screen in the store. And there was like a 16-year-old kid who worked there, and he was watching it. And so I walked up to him and I said, um, you're watching 2001 Space Odyssey? And he looked at me and he said, yeah, I've, I've watched this thing about 10 times. I still can't figure it out. <laughs> and then I, uh, I rented it and took it home, watched it, and I wrote the article, um, Alchemical Kubrick, a couple days later. And this was before the release of Eyes Wide Shut. There was about, he died on March 11th, I think, or March 9th. And, um, and uh, Eyes Wide Shut was released on July 20th, so there's you know a four or five month little span there of time, and the article came out. It got put up on the web, got like a million hits, and uh, but all my friends uh, criticized it. A lot of them because they said, well, there's no there's no indication in Kubrick's work of any interest in, in the occult, Jay. Not really. Um, so I think, you know, I don't know how you're deriving an occult alchemical interpretation from him. It doesn't seem to make sense, and I had to agree that I didn't have a scant evidence to show at that time any of this. It was just a feeling that the symbology in 2001 was so alchemical, the black monolith being, you know, the uh, philosopher's stone, the transmutation of Bowman, the astronaut into the star child exactly emulates the transmutation that comes in alchemy and uh and you know i thought i had that pretty well pegged and then eyes wide shut came out and then all the criticism disappeared uh no one told me that i was wrong about stanley not being interested in the occult and uh and then that got me going into watching everything that he had and then when blu-ray came out i well, it was before Blu-ray. When DVDs came out, it was about 2001 or 2002, I was watching 2001, the film. And uh, and I had been working with Richard Hoagland since the early 90s on the lunar research. And I have a, a huge uh, part of my life, which is spent, for some reason, constantly examining and looking at the moon and reading everything about it. I'm completely obsessed by the moon. I'm probably what a lunatic really means. <laughs> and uh so uh 
so I was watching 2001 and the ape scenes, and I'd known that they were shot with front projection because I, I, I just know a lot about movie making. And I was watching and actually starting to marvel at his incredible use of the front screen projection uh, screen that's used in the ape scenes in 2001. And then suddenly, uh, you know, years of looking at NASA photographs and film, and then watching this film, suddenly. I realized exactly how the the lunar things were done and why they had so many strange anomalies in the lunar image uh, library. And what I'm talking about is not the shots taken from above the moon or by lunar orbiter or a pioneer, but I'm talking about the shots taken by the astronauts during the Apollo missions. And then... I kept quiet about that, although I did run it by Richard Hoagland and got a very surprising reply from him uh, about that. And, um, and I kept quiet and I kept quiet. But then when Dark Mission came out, and I love Dark Mission, and I love Richard and, and Mike Bear, the great people, but I felt that the record had to be set straight. And so I uh, came out with the with the film because I wanted to set the record straight and make sure that people realize that what you're seeing on the, on the photographs that are taken by the astronauts on the surface of the moon are complete and total fraud and a complete fake. So, so that the the audience understands the 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 discrepancy or the difference between what Richard C. Hoagland and you have to say. Richard, I believe, said that what we saw in the background was a crystal structure, and what you're saying is it's a front screen projection, basically. It's the screen. screen. It's called a Scotchlight screen. It was made by right. 3M, and it's it's hundreds of thousands of little tiny glass beads that are very successful in reflecting light backwards. And uh, at 90 degrees, I mean. And uh, so, so everything that he finds uh, when he runs it through a spectrograph or does gamma readings on it and everything, it comes out saying, whatever this is, it's glass. Okay? And that's how, he, that's how he reaches these conclusions. There's a spectral analysis will tell you that it's glass. This is glass, so these must be glass towers. So therefore, that's why we can't see them, because they're glass. Of course, I don't know why the moon dust hasn't settled on the glass towers. But um, right. so, uh, the, uh, so that, you know, it became a working paradigm for him, um, and it wasn't one that I shared, but I still was very interested in the anomalies that he was finding, because they were definitely there, and I was really interested in how NASA never responds to anything that he says in any kind of meaningful fashion. And um, so that told me that, that, you know, they could either refute him and uh, slam, you know, do a body slam on him and he'll never come up again for error, um, but they don't. And uh, the reason they don't is because they would probably prefer that people think they're alien cities. <laughs> right, as opposed to being filmed in a studio somewhere. Yeah, it's a better explanation for them because it's so way out that no one's going to believe it. Anybody with a sane mind isn't going to just dismiss it, right, from the beginning. Uh, so, okay, he found this stuff, and then he says it's glass cities that are 20 miles high that you can't see with your naked eye. Okay, okay, I can accept that, maybe. Or is it artifacts from a cinema process called front screen projection in which light 
the background scenes are reflected off the, the um, background screen, uh, giving the effect that there's mountains and and everything out beyond the place where the astronauts are standing. And that was a thing that Kubrick was trying to achieve in the eight-man scenes in 2001. He didn't want to fly to Spain or someplace where, you know, do, he didn't want to do location work. He liked to go to bed in his own bed every night. And uh, so he decided to do it, you know, with front screen projection. So then the question became, okay, yeah, we've done, you know, little small scenes before using front screen projection, but nobody's done vast huge scenes with it and um that became the uh that became you know his goal was how to make it look vast and that's exactly what is being used on the lunar sets also so then i began examining the history of him shooting the front screen projection uh, ape scenes uh and we find that he was shooting those scenes first and also the front screen projection scenes that were done on the moon, on the lunar surface, in 2001. So he spent from 1964 to 1966 shooting all the front screen projection stuff, which adds up to about uh, 20 minutes total of the two-hour and 40-minute film. Uh, uh, so he spends two, um, half, the, half of the four years that he's making 2001 He's spending the first half just doing front projection. And what he's doing, of course, is he's trying everything he can to get it to work in the vastness that he needed for the movie. And also, the studio that he was doing the work at, which is Borham Wood in London, was not the studio that he shot the rest of the film in. In other words, he had two studios going at once. He had one studio that was doing all the stuff for everything that wasn't front screen projection. And then he had another studio where hardly anybody ever went, which is the front screen projection studio. Could uh, that be the same studio used for the moon yeah, landing? That's exactly what it was going on. He was <sighs> he had separated it so that there would not be anyone seeing actually what was going on. He, t he only had a couple technicians that he trusted. And uh, those technicians may not have even ever known what they were even doing. And maybe after they finally saw the Apollo footage, they may have said, wait a minute. Or they may not have even lived beyond that. I don't know. But that's where he shot it, and that's where he put it together. And, um, and, that, and the rest is history, you know. And, I, and, and you know, it, I, I think I have it dead to rights. Like, people can argue with me about whether Stanley Kubrick did it. That's true. They can argue, and, and I cannot actually give you a smoking gun outside of The Shining, that uh, that proves that he did it, but there, the coincidences begin mounting up, and the coincidences are that he was shooting 2001 Space Odyssey from 1964 to 1968. Um, the Apollo program began in 1964. It ended. It, it, it culminated uh, one in, in 1969, one year after Kubrick released 2001, and. Um, and, of course, they just did uh, six flights, and then the whole thing got put away, and they never went back. And, uh, and, and, and then, you know, Kubrick has Fred Ordway, who's the t one of the top NASA scientists, um, shuttling back and forth 
from Houston to London uh, uh, to work on 2001. And you, you got to wonder, is NASA paying this guy this big salary so he can um, go off and work on a Hollywood movie? That's very strange. And, uh, and finally, you know, the whole list that are in the original credits, which are gone now, which is where he thanks all of the companies involved in the moon landing um, for helping him with 2001 Space Odyssey. I want to go in chronological order because it, it is so fascinating. When I was watching your DVD, I was thinking, no, th this is impossible. And I remember as a 12-year-old kid watching The Shining, and some parts didn't make sense to me. And honestly, you must have an IQ from here to the moon, no pun intended, or somebody is connected with you. And we'll explore this, but just so that the audience knows exactly how this started. In the early 60s, when Dr. Strangelove came out, the government actually saw the movie and they did not lend him anything. And he actually made a B-52 bomber and they said, this is our guy to produce something big. And this is how they contacted Stanley Kubrick, wasn't it? Yeah, he uh, did the flight scenes of the B-52, and he sent the script, which you know is a lacerating, sarcastic, hilarious script written by he and Terry Southern. And right. uh, um, the Pentagon, you know, had their guy read it. Kubrick requested to have a B-52. He's going to shoot it. They read it, uh, and they got incensed. And, uh, uh, you know, actually uh, said, no way, we're not helping you, forget it. And then Kubrick's like, oh, that's okay, you know. <laughs> so then he just got a bunch of, he got, we ordered like 600 military magazines, every kind he could find. And he took all the pictures of B-52s that he could find inside and outside. And uh, he uh, pasted the photographs together until he had created an entire B-52, both in the inside and outside. And then he gave it to his art director and said, okay, build it. And uh, the Pentagon, you know, thought that they, you know, they'd, they'd put this guy in, in, in the bag. And then the film comes out and there's a B-52 that's not only exactly like a real B-52, right. but it looks like it's flying. And this is in the, in the early 60s. This was like astonishing. I'll never forget watching it on the big screen as a little kid going, wow, what's going on here? And, um, and so that became the uh, door opening into the rest of it. And uh, and he he was taken in, and he uh, moved uh, everything to England, and he began work on 2001, working with Arthur C. Clarke, who is a guy who was not only Walter Cronkite's science guy during the Apollo programs uh, on, on CBS, of which Richard Hoagland was one of the assistants on that, um, but he... Arthur C. Clarke is hobnobbing with uh, Herman Oberth, uh, Werner von Braun, uh, all the uh, top German scientists and a lot of scientists that we don't know their names, who are even more incredible than those two, um, are, are, are jockeying between London and Houston trying to get to uh, NASA to work on the moon program. And this is all going on at the same time. And so Kubrick's going over to Clark's apartment to ostensibly work on the script, and and he's sitting in there, and, and, and there's Fred Ordway, and there's Herman Olbruth, and there's Werner von Braun, and there's all these guys, and they're talking. And once you get into who these people really are and what they were really doing, 
then you find out that those must have been some very, very interesting conversations. And, I mean, I don't know how far down this goes. If you take Joseph Farrell's work uh, and extrapolate it, then we're dealing with uh, people, the Nazis, the Germans, who invented uh, a craft that could go really fast in interstellar space and in the solar system and on Earth and uh, using, you know, using the, the, the Bell experiments. And so it's probably highly likely that they knew a lot more in 1963 than we could even begin to believe, a lot more than we know even now. Um, I think they, they, they knew that Phobos was probably artificial, and I think that they knew that... Uh, that Iapetus was artificial. And that's why Arthur C. Clarke put the monolith landing on the moon of Saturn, Iapetus, in the novel 2001 Space Odyssey. So in the novel, Bowman doesn't go to Jupiter, he goes to Saturn. And he doesn't just go to Saturn, he goes to Iapetus. Well, the uh, stories that, uh, that they couldn't replicate uh, the rings of Saturn, do you believe that story? I did a long time ago, but now, once I investigated these Germans and I investigated their secret societies that they were part of, I realized that there was this uh, huge obsession with Saturn, and and, uh, and and that they were actually they were actually members of, of a Saturnian societies and and occult groups all dedicated to Saturn, and Saturn is Kronos or time who is the Grim Reaper, and also he um, uh, sacrifices children to get their juju, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. and, um, and that makes him young again, by the way. Uh, the old man Saturn turns into young man Saturn after he sacrifices. And all this lore about Saturn, I began reading it and studying it, trying to figure out why they named the rockets the Saturn V, and right. you know, what's going to the moon, it doesn't make any sense, and, and uh, all this stuff. And then I realized, of course, that Kubrick had been ordered to change it from Saturn and Iapetus to something much, much more mundane, Jupiter. This is why I like to talk to you, Jay, because I open one door, and you always open 10 behind me, and it's always a different thing. But, uh, <laughs> you know, just let, let's go back for a moment regarding yeah. that moment when, when they said, uh, when, after they watched Dr. Strangelove, the United States government. I know this is speculation, but how do you think the negotiations went between Kubrick and, and the U.S. government regarding directing the footage of the Apollo mission? What do you think he was offered? Um, he was offered... Um, what is obvious, he's the only filmmaker that I know of ever who was able to make. Up until 2001, he was struggling. He hardly made any money off of any of his films. He got a big check for directing Spartacus. Finally, Dr. Strangelove made money, so he finally was coming into a little bit of money. Um, but he was still desperate. He's still a desperate guy, and he still needed the approval of the studios to do movies and everything. And after 2001, he had no problems. He had a big estate. He had no money problems. He could make any film he wanted. Uh, the studio gave him carte blanche. We know this is a 
This is a you know a, a known public fact that Kubrick had an open contract with Warner Brothers to make any film he wanted with any budget he wanted, and uh, uh, and he did, and that's why he you know he he would his films even like Eyes Wide Shut would have seventy eighty takes, and he was burning film, and if you know how much film costs, you know you know one minute is about a hundred dollars, so he's running hours and hours and hours and hours every day and and running up these huge film costs and nobody's blinking an eye nobody's saying hey stanley cool it uh and nobody's even actually even supervising the project there's no usually they have a consulting producer on a film the, the studios and he everything gets run by him and then run by the guys in the studio before the the big decisions are made and kubrick has none of that also, and what is really also very interesting about um, about all of this is um, is Kubrick's wife Christiana, who uh, is German, and she's the German lady at the end of Paths of Glory, who sings the song. It's probably the most moving scene that Kubrick ever shot. Uh, the French soldier singing the sad uh, song, and uh, and they all start crying, and she's the captured German girl that's in that scene. She's gorgeous. And her whole family is the Harlins, and they're a huge uh, German upper-crust family. And uh, they, you know, they had their... They had their tentacles deep into some of the some of the uglier sides of uh, history, and uh, so Kubrick Kubrick was able to get whatever he wanted, and he did, and he was able to make any film he wanted. Now, some people say, well, he was going to make a film on Napoleon. Why didn't he make it? And the answer is quite simply that it wasn't the studio that pulled the film on Napoleon. It was Kubrick that pulled the film on Napoleon, and the reason he did it was because Rod Steiger had turned out a, a mess of a film called Waterloo, which was probably one of the worst movies ever made, and destroyed Napoleon for, for at least 50 years. Mm. And Kubrick didn't want to touch it after that. And it's really simple. And uh, they used up the juice and uh, before he got to it, and he didn't. He doesn't. You know, he won't. He refused to do anything that emulated what was going on in society. His films are always rebellious and and um, dark and uh, satirical and uh, uh, reveal a side of human nature that most filmmakers would not even want to show. And it's interesting how you say that he was such a perfectionist that uh, even The Shining, he had, what, a 1.3 million feet of film and uh, had Shelley Duvall upset because he would take uh, some takes, he would do it a hundred times when she was used to doing two or three at the most. So I'm looking here at the cost, estimated cost of uh, Apollo back then, about 40 billion, which is adjusted yep. today, Jay, about 285 billion and change. That's Did right. the money really go into the facade, meaning NASA, Lockheed, and all the contractors and all the people who? Who worked diligently thinking they were really putting a man on the moon and i ask you this because many of those people are still alive oh yeah Do you get any hate mail from from them about your findings <laughs> oh you have no idea um, i get amazing hate mail and uh um and they're all really nice people and um and 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 and, and they're and they're you know brilliant in their own way and so they're very angry at me, and they throw, after they're done with the insults, then begins the tedious back and forth of uh, evidence. Mm. And uh, um, 
I have to tell you that I've converted of quite a few. After the back and forth are over, they're going, hmm, this is very strange. And uh, because there's a lot of strange things about the moon that are never being talked about. And uh, that, that in itself, the whole moon subject could go on for hours. But uh, so what, what, what really, I'm not going to say this to them, but I'll speculate that what's probably going on here is that they are working on stuff, yes, and, and that stuff is being used, computers and all the things that they were building, but they weren't working on Apollo. They were working on what uh, um, I affectionately call the secret space program. Right. And uh, it had been going on, I know for sure, since at least the late 50s, but I'm beginning now to backtrack it to 47 when the uh, national security state was born and the CIA and all that, I think that was the year that they began working on with the German health scientists on a plan to put amazing amount of resources into the Bell experiments. And, uh, and, and I think that I don't know where they were when they did this. I suspect it was Antarctica or it could be northern Canada, someplace very far away from everyone. They built a base, and uh, they began working on craft, and they perfected the craft. Now, I've had conversations with um, people in Germany who've told me that they, that they were working on UFOs uh, with these guys, and that... N- that they they were really highly developed by the time World War II ended, a lot more than Farrell is saying. And I think, as Hoagland says, I think that, yeah, the, 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 the secret space program, all the secret space program had to do was to get to one of the artificial structures, whether it's Phobos or it's on the moon or Iapetus or somewhere, one of these artificial things that are out there, and get in and back engineer it. And if they did, then they are now a thousand years ahead of us or more. And there's no need to bring this technology out because it's still profitable for them to keep the tin cans and, and the airplanes flying, right? That and we're not allowed, of course, to have it. And um, the... Uh, uh, and that's going to be a problem in itself, although I'm, I, I will say this, just as an aside to all this, it appears as if these people have decided to um, get rid of all of us. I cannot reach no other conclusion. And the um, managers that have been left behind uh, by these people um, are as dumb as stump. And uh, their children are going to die, too, with us. So if there's a Rothschild-Rockefeller conspiracy, they're in the same deep water that we're all in right now. So they're basically being misled. They're being given a carte blanche thinking that they'll be saved when, in the end, they would also find their demise. I'm afraid that's, that's exactly what's going on. And uh, they went off planet, and they're holding out until... We're all cooked. And that's the only explanation that I can give you for what's going on in Japan. Because I cannot come up with one reason why the entire world isn't rushing all of our engineers and scientists to that poor country and helping those people. No. 
but they're not. They're not even talking about it. So Later in the show, just because I want to cover a lot of the Kubrick part, but later in the show, I have some questions about the series, The Event. Have you been following that show at all? I have not. I'm, I, I'm going to get it on DVD. It's coming out here soon. I'm going to get the whole first season, and then I'll be able to talk to people about it. But I hear it's a really good show. I can't tell you how many dots you can connect. Even when the whole earthquake was happening in Japan, the show that was airing that week was talking about radioactive fallout happening. So every week, something was happening around the world that was coinciding with what they were airing. And you know it takes uh, well, a few weeks, a few months to, to produce. More like a year. Exactly. Yeah. But why is NASA so obsessed Again, going back to Saturn. First, yeah. we have Werner von Braun, who designed the, 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 the Saturn V, Germany Project Paperclip. Now we hear of the rings of Saturn and Dr. Norman Bergram's work, the ring makers of Saturn. Oh, that's great stuff. By the way, folks, I'm still in communication with Dr. Bergram, but he's still working on something else, and he doesn't want to talk until he's done. The new work is about the sun and what we've been seeing uh, coming in and out of the sun. And recently, uh, I, I had respected uh, remote viewing uh, instructor, Dr. Angela Thompson-Smith, who was commissioned, Jay, by people who read Dr. Bergram's book to remote view the rings of Saturn. And what she found was that there were vehicles mining the rings of Saturn. But that's another show, and Saturn's hexagon in its North Pole. Have you looked into Saturn and why they're so interested? Well, I think that they know that it's not a... a I really hate to sound. I know I sound wacky enough, but you know, and I never thought I would, I would, I would go down any of these roads. By the way, I, I'm, I'm mm -hmm. actually a very conservative person, and and I don't really, actually, I, I resisted alien things, and I, re I resisted off-planet intelligences, and and I tried to f use Occam's razor to to prove right. that it was just it's terrestrial and I've been in debates, and people want to kill me because I didn't believe in aliens and. And guess what? After all this time, I now am coming to the belief, and I have no doubt I've got rock-ribbed evidence to back it up, uh, there are definitely off-planet intelligences, and they are definitely screwing with this planet in a, in a way that is shocking. And um, Kubrick knew it, by the way, and it's going to be in part two, Kubrick the Magician, huh. uh, which I get into what Kubrick thought about what was going on. And I've reached a conclusion that he understood completely. So Saturn, Saturn may not even be a planet. I hate to say this. I, or it's such a weird planet that uh, it, it boggles the mind. And uh, I think it, I, if, if, if the universe, or if the solar system, I mean, were, if you can imagine a, a toroidal donut, with the sun at the center of, of, of this of this universal solar um, system electromagnetic field uh, that's shaped like a donut. Its it, it center is the sun, and its outer perimeter is the orbit of Saturn. And Saturn, by its orbit, is containing the field and keeping it set. And Saturn was also called Set, by the way, uh, in ancient Egypt. And uh, it gets set, and it sets time, and it creates the false idea of uh, linear time, of instead of uh, polychronic time, which is what we're supposed to be living in, um, it creates a falseness that I call monochronic time, 
which is this idea that time has a beginning, a middle, and an end, and we're racing towards the end. And everybody is, every day, every moment, your lives. And this is not really a true idea. It's, it's, it's a contrivance that we've invented and that we use so that we can create civilization, but it's not real. And we are now falling into a world where we're trapped by time, and Saturn is time, and it's Kronos. And we are slaves now of time. We're slaves to the contrivance. And in that, in that, in that idea of monochronic, of, the, of this monochronic idea, is you know nothing but a terrifying ending for everything, and everybody uses it, engenders these ideas that, and causes people to begin using up everything now because it's all going to come to an end soon anyway. So, and then this, of course, speeds up the apocalyptic notions, and we race towards oblivion. And so, and so there has to be a reason for all of this. And I, I never could figure it out why we were doing this to ourselves as a species when we could be living you know, a much happier polychronic life like people um, in, in countries that haven't been civilized or, or industrialized uh, still have. You can still go to like New Guinea or some places in Indonesia and you know, you'll say, okay, let's meet for dinner at 6 and they show up at you know, 9. And, and every, it's cool. Nobody cares about it because that's how life is lived. Where here, that would be a heresy. So, so that, that's what Saturn does. Is it's set. It's Satan. It's um, it's the Grim Reaper. It's the 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 being who sacrifices children so that he can be renewed. And he ha- it has a hex pattern in its clouds at the North Pole. Yeah, the, the hexagon. What's up with that? Well, it's interesting. Um, that's why I don't think that it's a real planet, because that it has to be something down under the clouds that's moving, uh, that's causing those cloud patterns to stay in a hexagonal form, and that can only mean artificiality. And when you look at Iapetus and the moon, you see actually all over the moon and all over Iapetus, these hexagonal craters, yeah. which is the dangest thing you've ever seen. And you say, well, how could a crater hit, how could a meteor hit, uh, you know, and leave a hexagonal crater? And I mean, like perfect hexagonal craters. And the, uh, the answer is, is that's not what's going on at all. What's going on is that the meteor is hitting it, and it's uh, blowing away the material on the top and revealing the substructure. And that's why they're hexagonal. And the substructure of Saturn appears to be hexagonal. In other words, a gigantic um, six-pointed star, um, like the Star of Solomon, mm-hmm. uh, spinning and creating a huge vortex that, uh, uh, that, that creates linear time and keeps everything in, a, in an order uh, of which we probably have very little choice in, in those decisions. And, and this is probably the same thing as what the moon is. The moon is in a way governing and, and, and keeping uh, the Earth's field from going wonky. And uh, 
and, and so it creates a stability here that in in the time fields. I know talking about time is very abstract, and, and, a, lot, and a lot of people have a lot of difficulty with it. But you know, time actually is like a river or or like a uh, a wave, and it has you know ebbing and flows, and it and it like a it, spiral. Yeah, and, and and it tightens in on itself, and then it explodes out. So you know, one year in the life of a ten-year-old uh, is a far different than one year in the life of a sixty-year-old. Uh, you know, the sixty-year-old's year is going by a lot faster than right. the ten-year-old's, and that's a real thing. So it's, it's the quality of time, and each of us have our own time fields, and our time fields are caught in the web of a gigantic time fields that are, you know, the planets circling each other and the moon, I mean, the sun moving, you know, through the uh, entire galaxy at a very high speed. Uh, uh, and, you know, these things are all part of a spinning matrix, which makes up the, makes up the whole uh, fabric of, of reality, which is really made up of uh, a kind of a mirrored a dance between space and time. And you mentioned uh, children w with Saturn. It brings me to something that many people may not think is related, but could this also have to do with the occult and the pedophilia rings? That it, yeah, exactly. it's not only for pleasure for them, but also as a ritual? You know, this is uh, kind of one of the most obvious things in the world that nobody either sees or wants to talk about. And um, I remember years and years ago going reading one of Aleister Crowley's books, uh, and I'm not going to say the book or anything because I don't want anybody to even think about this, and I don't want to encourage it. But in the book, he talks about how you can uh, – uh, attain as much magical ability as you as magician awesome magician and he repeat that again they, they, they cut you off for about they cut you off for about five seconds when you started saying it okay uh, in this book there's a chapter and in the chapter it's all about how you can um, become uh, endowed with a huge amount of chi so that you can do amazing magic Okay, he gives you a formula for how to do it, right? And the formula, and I'm not kidding you, is to um, slay a prepubescent boy and suck up its chi. And so I had a lot of friends who were into Crowley, and I was reading him, and uh, I got to this passage, this is uh, 25 years ago, and I went to my friends who were Crowley followers, and I said, uh, what does this mean? And they're, oh, it's allegory, it's metaphor, he doesn't really mean it. And uh, so I said, oh, okay, that's kind of a strange metaphor. I don't understand it, but if they say it, I don't know enough about this stuff, and I'm not that interested in it. So I just kind of put it away. And then when I got into the Kubrick stuff and started investigating Saturn, and I came across ancient Sumerian depictions of, of Set and Typhon and all these uh, serpentile uh, deities, And these deities in Mexico, uh, from Persia, uh, from Africa, um, and these deities are, are eating children and eating their heads first, mm -hmm. head first, eating them. And 
And then I started thinking that, well, that's strange because this idea that Saturn has chewing up little children, you know, has gone back a long way, and well, thousands of years, and so there must be something to it. And of course, we have our own myths that Saturn, you know, eats the children and then becomes young again at the end of, it, of every year in January, and uh, so. I then took the next leap and began looking into these Saturnian cults out of Germany to see if they had like any connection to to doing things to little children. I'll put it to you that way. And at first, I didn't find anything. And so I thought, well, you know, it's just another you know another wrong turn on the highway of life. And uh, and then I got a book uh, from. Feral Press, my good friend Adam Parfrey sent me a book, and it's a, it's a book that at first read, you know, you'd think it was totally wacky, but as you start reading it, it's, it there's uh, huge descriptions of what goes on in these secret societies, and it's open and complete pedophilia and um, child uh, sacrifice. You're talking and about the Franklin, the Franklin scandal, are you? Yeah, well, yeah, okay. that was one of them. Yep. Well, one of many. There was also one in the Reagan administration, of which everybody that uh, was talking, all they all died. Yep. They were all murdered. And uh, so then I said to myself, well, that's really strange, you know. The Saturnian cult has this idea about, they have this, has an obsession with pedophilia. And then I started thinking, well, you know, it is the biggest taboo of all. And you would have to be a secret society because if anyone finds out, they're going to hang you out to dry. And uh, so you would want to keep it secret, and you'd want to you'd want to look for others to help you. And then you would set up secret groups that were kidnapping and funneling children so that you could use them. And the purpose, well, ostensibly, you think, oh, they just are attracted to little children. But actually, the purpose is to steal the chi. It's sex magic. Hmm. And that's why it's prepubescent, because as your chi, as any qigong master will tell you, you know, your chi is so strong until you go into puberty. And then it starts diminishing. And so you want, you know, the humans to have the most amount of chi. Well, you know, when I, in, 19, in 2000, I was uh, living in Boulder and I was investigating the Joan Benet Ramsey murders and I, I wrote, I and Vincent Bridges, we wrote uh, an article that got millions of hits, which blew the case wide open. And, uh, and our only conclusion was, was that the reason that they had not caught the murderer of Joan Benet, and it was quite obvious who had done it, uh, was because the police, the judges, the DA, everybody was in some kind of cult and they were protecting them. Oh. And uh, that's now that has then when I got into the Kubrick work and I saw the subtext within Kubrick was that he was trying to warn people in subliminally and sometimes not so subliminally that there are predators seeking children and they're everywhere. everywhere. Which movie? L Lolita was the one who portrayed that? Lolita, if you watch Lolita closely, you will you will realize that um, Peter Sellers and his lady um, are actually trying to get both Lolita and James Mason into a secret pedophile cult, yeah. and that they're on the lookout for this cult. And 
Um, it's quite astounding because you really it kind of just blows right by you. You don't really know it until you start thinking about it. Like, who are they? What are they doing in this movie? And then you realize, oh, I get it. And they saw her and they wanted to bring her into their cult. And then, you know, he's, after Dr. Strangelove, you know, he started working with Arthur C. Clarke. And then, you know, I saw, you know, I'm Googling everything in. And so, you know, I Google in Arthur C. Clarke. That's pedophile, right. And there you go. There's an article written for the London Times mm-hmm. in which he advocated that they legalize it. Well, he says that he didn't mess with children. He messed with with uh, boys in puberty, which he thought it was not the same. Come on. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know. No, I'm, I'm, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. I mean, and I hate to even say it because I mean, people say would say, "Oh my God, Mel, you're, you're attacking Arthur C. Clarke." But folks, all you have to do is read. Yeah. All that information I, out there. I love Arthur C. Clarke. He's my favorite science fiction writer. And, and I love his books. I've read them all a dozen times each. I have nothing against Arthur C. Clarke at all. I'm just expressing, you know, the facts. The facts are that he advocated for pedophilia. And um, then you start looking at the whole thing, and, and you see eyes wide shut. And of course, you can see that these are... The, the, well, hold on, hold on, hold on, Jay. I don't mean to interject, but yeah. let, just let's, uh, to let the audience know, at one okay. point, Prince Charles was flying to Sri Lanka, Tonight, Arthur C. Clarke, and he had to turn the airplane around because they heard that the news about Arthur C. Clarke being a pedophile made it out to the news. Well, he was knighted a year after. But oh, uh, I got to tell you incredible. something. Uh, one of my most powerful shows was also the lowest rated show. It was about the Franklin scandal with uh, yeah. great researcher Nick Bryant. And the reason why, and I get so many emails from people saying they did not want to face the truth. If you yeah. want to know the truth about the pedophile rings and how people in in the highest ranks of the U.S. government are subverted or destroyed. Be brave and listen to that show I did with Nick Bryant and get ready to be surprised. I am, I'm going to listen to it right away, actually. Um, it, 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 this even goes into like the Bush administration yes. and, the, and the little kid Johnny Gooch who was kidnapped uh, on his paper route in Des Moines, yes. Iowa. And, and, then, and then this reporter turns up Who's got the same initials as JG? I forget his name now. Yep. And, and and friends with Bush. Yeah, he has sixty-eight visits to the White House. Yeah. Where he spent the night, and, and then it turned out that he was a gay prostitute. And it's not, I have nothing against gays. I'm just saying, you know, wow, you know, this is pretty strange. You know, this kid got kidnapped, and now it looks just like him. Even though he denies it, he looks just like the kid. His yep. mother says that that's him. <laughs> Did you know that years later, he actually, with his handlers, came back to the house, knocked on the door, and yep. told the mother, I'm fine, but I can't, you can never see me again, and he left again. Did you know that? Yeah, I did know that, and that's why she came forth when he got public. And he's disappeared, of course, now. Yep. Um, uh, and it's well known that the agencies, you know, find the president's predilection and they uh they find people to help him keep him you know uh focused i guess you might say um you know this hilarious story of uh the cia picking these incredibly gorgeous women and then sending them up to the oval office so that you know they would have sex with nixon to keep him calm and because he wasn't getting any they thought and um and nixon you know was such a 
such a uh, he didn't understand what was going on, or he did, and he was too uh, too much of an idiot to go forward. Uh, he would end up with these beautiful women showing him family photo albums and playing classical music to him, and you know, and they would just laugh their asses off because they, he didn't realize what was going on. And, uh, and and this is going on all the time, and it's going on right now. I guarantee it. And uh, so when you look and you see. What happens is with this pedophilia thing, and it's very easy to explain. When um, I'm forgetting his name, the big, huge New York gangster, he was the guy who incorporated the mafia. I'll get his name in a second. Uh, he was the best friend of Bugsy Siegel. Uh, I'll think of his name in a second. And uh, he was a, a brilliant guy, a very, very intelligent guy. And he called the mafia together, and he told them, this is in the, in the 50s, early 50s, and he told them there's no, that, that shooting people and assassinating people and, and all that was really distasteful, and it just gives us a bad name, and we've got to find a way to um, not do this because they're going to come after us and come after us. So he suggested this meeting of the mafioso bosses that they incorporate, that they begin running their organizations like corporations, and that instead of shooting people, he said, I've got a much better weapon, and he pulled back the curtain, and there was a 16-millimeter Bolex camera on a tripod. And they set up houses in every city, the mob did, with two-way mirrors, or one-way mirrors, and... Uh, and filmed everybody. And they owned the world at that point. And that's what's going on. And, uh, and they're using it. In other words, all of the people in office have been compromised. And that's why they never do what we want. And they never will. Well, as I always say, they are subverted or destroyed. They go to parties. When the party's over and they're already drunk, they start bringing the models and they start bringing the young children and what happens afterwards, it's filmed. And in the future, they go back to that person and say, hey, by the way, that legislation that's coming up, uh, you're going to be voting in favor of it, right? No, I won't. Well, let me show you this piece of video. You will. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I think your wife would like to see this, don't you? Oh, jeez. Oh, yeah. oh, yeah. That would really help me. You know, and that's how they do it, and it's brilliant, and uh, that's how the world works now, and it's worked this way. This was this guy uh, in the IMF who raped and almost, you know, really hurt that maid. Um, you know, he he didn't. That's not a normal thing. I'm sorry. Do you do you normal. really think? Well, we have really no proof that he did or he didn't because we weren't there. Do that's you think true. there's a probability that maybe he was subverted and that he was? trying to do something that the powers that be didn't want and he was set up? Uh, it's entirely possible, but um, he has a long history of brutalizing women. Okay. Yeah, uh, he does. And he said in an interview a year ago that the biggest thing that could be a drawback for him to become the president of France is uh, his uh, predilections. He didn't mm. elaborate. <clears throat> and... Uh, so, you know, the people that think that none of this is true and everything, well, they're just dead wrong. It's it's so true, it hurts. And uh, and we should be trying to do something about it, to be honest with you. This is, in my opinion, and this is why I said that it was the lowest rated show that I've ever done and the most powerful. It's one of those truths that people just do not want to face. Many people think this topic is essentially roadkill. You drive by it, you know it stinks. And you drive away and don't think too much about it. 
But this is worse, and I hate to even undermine 9-11 or the big conspiracies, but this is bigger than that because you really Absolutely. don't want to even imagine that your lawmaker or the person you elected is involved in such a crime. But speaking of wives, remembering The the Shining, when Shelley Duvall comes in and reads one of the, the papers from uh, Jack, Jack Nicholson's uh, typewriter and she realizes what he's doing, do you think that this is really what happened one day with Kubrick's wife and she realized what he was getting into? Yeah, I think she stumbled onto something, uh, you know, and uh, uh, something that he was working on, and and you know, she looked into it and looked into it, and then finally she saw that it was that, and she confronted him, and he broke down and told her to please not tell anybody, and and she threatened to leave him and take the kids, and the whole drama that's actually inside The Shining was a drama of uh, Stanley and Christiana. Kubrick, uh, in their angst, uh, Stanley probably was losing it uh, at the time uh, a little bit, and uh, you know working really hard and and having to keep about thirty percent of it completely secret, and it was taking its toll on him, which you can see from the photographs. And I think that uh, that the Shining is a complete evocation of the uh, duress that he went under, and I would love to talk to Stephen King about this because I think it actually solves all the problems that Stephen King was having with the Kubrick film which was why the hell did he take a left turn here when you know I had a great right. plot going and, and now we know and every every turn away from King in the movie The Shining is a, a, another explanation another symbolic code for what Kubrick was going through when he was launching or uh, doing the Apollo missions uh, for NASA, and uh, uh, when well, when you see the uh, my uh, uh, what I do with the Shining and how I deconstruct it, uh, yes. it's pretty convincing. I, I get goosebumps by by imagining because all of us who watched The Shining for years see this now. It gives a different meaning. When I was watching it, I was still skeptical until the moment you see the little kid wearing that Apollo Eleven sweater and he's going to room 237 and then you see the ALL or what looks like A11 or Apollo 11. But speaking on, of the movies of, of Kubrick, and before we take a break, I want to just leave with this. The movie Clockwork Orange, it seems that a lot of the movies that Kubrick made wanted to tell us something. In this case, it was mind control. A couple of years ago, I interviewed Dr. Edgar Mitchell. Uh, to uh, go back to the moon to learn to use the space environment in near-Earth orbit better, uh, to prepare ourselves to go on to Mars in due course um, while, as our civilization matures. But the main thing is to use the tools of space and the technologies for the betterment of civilization and for non-warlike means, but to help us discover ourselves and our place in the universe in a better way. You said on a British radio show that you know for sure we're not alone in the universe and that you happen to be privileged to be in on the fact that we have been visited on this planet and that the UFO phenomenon is real, although it's been covered up by governments for quite a long time. Dr. Mitchell, did you see anything on the moon Hello? that NASA did not show us nor tell us? Dr. Mitchell? Hello? Did you get the question? Hello? 
I can hear you just fine. Can you hear me? Well, it looks like we've uh, lost each other. Now, that's very strange. Hello? Oh, hung up. Hello? Dr. Mitchell. Yeah, where did I lose you? I have no idea. I asked you a question, and all of a sudden, you couldn't hear me. Okay. Can you hear me now? I can hear you now. I couldn't hear you for a while. I asked you if you were there, and I couldn't hear anything. Not a problem. Let's proceed with another question then. The late astronaut Gordon Cooper revealed UFO secrets before he died in 2004. He said, quote, Was it a technical glitch? I don't know. Was it that he was triggered into going that way, or did he know he couldn't talk? No, he, he was mind-controlled. I, I was really good friends. Well, I can't say good friends. I was associate with Robert Masters, who was a great hypnotherapist, uh, a husband of Gene Houston, uh, uh, co-writer with Margaret Mead, uh, who just unfortunately recently died a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. And he told me in a private conversation that Mitchell had come to him in the late 70s asking if he could be hypnotized by Bob Masters so that he could remember what happened to him on the moon. And I was very intrigued, of course, because of all my, uh, you know, my interest in, in, in all things lunar. So yeah. I said, well, you know, what, what happened? You know, did, did he remember him? And he said, no. He said, we spent about 200 hours in, in deep hypnotherapy, and we could not pull the memories. And, and, and then, you know, I said, is it possible there were no memories? And he looked at me and he went, hmm, I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> so, no, there weren't any memories. I also, uh, at another time, I had a conversation with... I hope the, that somebody's speaking the phone on your side of the uh, phone and not uh, third party. Uh, well, there's a lot of uh, clicking going on here for sure. Um, yeah. uh, uh, that happens a lot for some reason. And... Um, uh, I was at a party, uh, a party of NASA people uh, back when they still would talk to me, and uh, I uh, somebody said, "Hey, the psychiatrist who debriefed all the Apollo astronauts is here." I'm like, "What?" You know, and they dragged me over to this woman who's, you know, she's probably in her mid fifties at the time. This was about 50, 20 years ago almost. And I said, "I said, do you are the person who debriefed the Apollo astronauts?" And she goes, yeah, it was a really great job. I'm so excited. I said, I said, so what did they tell you? Anything? And she, and she looked at me straight, completely sincerely. And, and she said, you know, it's really strange. But for some reason, I can't remember anything that happened in those mm-hmm. sessions. And I said, you're, you're, you mean you can't talk? You, they told you you can't talk, and that's what you're saying? And she said, no, no, I, I'm not under any security oath or anything. I, I can't remember. I mean, it's the dangest thing I've ever seen. I cannot remember what happened there. And I was like, well, now, that's pretty interesting. And I went back. I was actually, I was, Richard Hoagland was there, and I went back to Richard, and I said, Richard, she doesn't remember any of it. And he looked at me, and he said, do you believe her? And I said, Yeah. I think she's telling me the truth, and and I think that we have to come to grips with they've got some very serious mind control. Kubrick knew about it, and he made Clockwork Orange uh, at a time when we didn't even know what MK Ultra was then in 1971. Right. And here's a, a movie about mind control, of which Kubrick is coming down very fiercely on the side of anti-mind control. 
Absolutely. And one last thing before we take a break. Speaking of these astronauts, you probably know who James Fox is, investigative journalist. He wanted to interview Boss Aldrin for years. And he kept saying, no, no. But one day, Aldrin called James and said, hey, if you want to interview me, I'm flying to Monte Carlo for my book tour. We can meet there. We can do the interview. So James flew to Monte Carlo. He was waiting for days. And after five days of waiting in his hotel, and you know that Monte Carlo is not cheap. He called Aldrin and said, Mr. Aldrin, I've been here for five days. Can you please meet? And he said, okay, okay. Tomorrow morning at night, meet me at my lobby. Come alone. So he went there at nine o'clock in the morning, waited for hours and hours. Aldrin wouldn't show up. So he went to the concierge and said, can you please get Mr. Aldrin? So Aldrin got on the phone and said, I'm sorry, I can't do it. He stood him up. So he went back to California, James. Aldrin's sister happens to be the, the Aldrin, the, uh, Aldrin's sister happens to be James's neighbor. And he said, yep, somebody got to him. What do you say about that? Yeah, well, the thing is, is that once it gets out that there that we've that there've been Clockwork Orange, you can kind of do what you did with Mitchell. You can kind of ignite it and trigger it. Um, trigger it, yeah. And and they can't risk it anymore because too much information has got out about these techniques, and now we're all hip to it. And so they're terrified of even being on TV or showing any kind of spontaneous in any kind of spontaneous moment, any of them. And you, you just really can't do it, I guarantee it, I've tried. And uh, uh, there's a lot of uh, things going on here behind the scenes that you know people don't know about. And when we come back, we should talk about links of NASA to the Kennedy assassination and a whole lot of strange things going on uh, absolutely. that uh, are absolutely mind-boggling. And I have, uh, on the way back, I'll tell you folks something about Armstrong that you probably haven't heard. But tell us once again how to get in touch with your work, your website, Jay. Yeah, uh, all, all my films are up at sacredmysteries.com. Of course, you can also buy them on Amazon. And uh, uh, my articles and everything are up at my own site, Jay Widener, J-A-Y-W-E-I-D-N-E-R.com. And uh, that's all for free. You can go there and, and uh, really uh, realize what a serious uh, nutcase I am. <laughs> and uh, when you listen to Jay, you know that he's full of surprises. So we have a lot more to cover on segment two. This is Mel Fabregas, and I'm here with Jay Whitener. You're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you very much for listening. We're going to talk more with our special guest in our members section. If you're not a member, just head on over to our website, veritasshow.com, and click on the subscribe link to listen to the rest of the show. As a member... Have you subscribed to the iTunes link? Let iTunes download all segments of each new show automatically. There's a link in the members section. Just click on it and let iTunes do the rest. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with more. Enjoy. I was spending my time in doldrums. I was caught in a cauldron of hate. I felt persecuted and paralyzed I thought that everything else would just wait While you are wasting your time on your enemies Engulfed in a fever of spite Beyond your tunnel vision, reality fades like shadows into the night To martyr your 
yourself to caution is not gonna help at all because there'll be no safety in numbers when the right one walks out of the door Linda Moulton Howe, and you're listening to Veritas. 